Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today we have another fascinating topic and also a very interesting guest. We will be talking about the rise of middle powers and our guest today is Michael Mazar. He is from RENT, one of the best-known preeminent think tanks in the U.S. or probably also globally. He is a senior political scientist there and prior to joining RAND, he served as a professor and associate dean at the U.S. National War College in Washington, D.C. He has served as a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, President and CEO of the Harvey L. Stimson Center, Senior Vice President for Strategic Planning at the Electronic Industries Alliance, Legislative Assistant in the U.S. House of Representatives, and Senior Fellow and Editor of the Washington Quarterly at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. That's an impressive pedigree, and we're very happy to have you here, Mike. Welcome. Thank you very much. That just means I'm very old. I've had time to have a number of different jobs. <laughs> That's also a way of putting it, but we're very glad that we can benefit from your broad and long experience <laughs> on these matters. Let's put it that way. So let's start with a simple definition. What is what is a middle power? How do you find that? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, there's a lot of different terms that are being used these days of, of middle powers and pivot states, the global south, all those kind of things. When I think of middle powers, primarily, these are countries that are not great powers. And there you run into another definitional issue. There, there are a variety of different definitions of great powers, but essentially... These are the countries that sit at the very top of the hierarchy in combined overall power. So military power, economic power, geopolitical influence. Uh, one definition in particular says a great power is a country that could fight any other great power to a standstill, something like that. So at any given time, like at the moment, I think you could say there's really two clearly identifiable great powers, the United States and China, obviously. Russia sort of on the edge, um, but in non-military realms, not really. And then you have, you know, very small, just small by kind of overall scale, small by size of economy countries at the other end of the spectrum. And then in between, you have the middle powers, which are countries with sufficient importance and influence in at least one area of national power to exercise uh, independent effect, I think, on outcomes in the international system. So you've got very significant economic powers like Germany. Japan is another big economic power, which is becoming a bigger military power. India still classifies, I think, as a middle power, although on its way to, you know, very possibly great power status um, over the next several decades. So the middle powers are countries that Uh, sit in the middle of the international hierarchy of power, but that critically have both the capacity and the interest 
in shaping outcomes in international politics, in international economics, in, in geopolitics, in ways that makes them active actors on the international stage. So although they are not great powers, uh, particularly in their collective influence, they're a critical factor in determining a lot of international outcomes. Well, thanks for this. And, and obviously, the problem with any of these definitions is they're a bit complicated. You also mentioned the global south, which is one of these other terms that is being used a lot recently. But it's uh, also quite fuzzy because it has different connotations, geographical, economic development, and also alignment questions, which I think you right. haven't mentioned. So for you, a middle power is not the same as a non-aligned country, because some of these countries, Japan, Germany, they're clearly economically and militarily in the part of the Western alliance together with the United States, whereas countries such as India traditionally, but also today, have always defined themselves as kind of being non-aligned. Right. Yeah. I mean, in each of these things is a bit sort of distinct. So Global South is, is a reference. Um, the term implies a geographic reference, but it's really more a reference to developing countries, you know, many of whom or most of whom are non-aligned. A term like pivot states uh, is often sort of ref a reference to geographic significance and sort of strategic significance, even if the country is not a very significant actor. But to me, middle powers refer is not a question of alignment. It's not necessarily a question of development level. It is countries that are their economy, their size, their ambitions are significant enough to give them some heft in the international system, even though they're not great powers. And they have they actively participate in shaping outcomes in various areas. So in that sense, it's really more of a measure of power. Uh, sort of a term that refers to countries of a certain power level and ambition level, as opposed to geography, as opposed to alignment, as opposed to development level. Now, we've titled this episode The Rise of the Middle Powers. So would you say that these middle powers have become more important in recent times? Because one could also obviously argue for the opposite to be true, especially now that we seem to be heading into what many observers call an increasingly bipolar world again. I think definitely they've become more significant over the last couple of decades for a variety of reasons. And in comparison with other historical eras in different kinds of ways. I mean, you know, for one thing, you go back even a couple of centuries and you're at a time when underneath the great powers, you don't have a significant collection of really well-developed middle powers, well-developed economically, I mean, who, you know, have really the sort of wherewithal to be significant players in the international system in the same way that some middle powers today are. I think one of the reasons that they're rising, so to speak, is that we're coming out of a period of unipolarity, right? We're coming out of the post-Cold War era where the United States was sort of dominant. And and now, and we can talk about this, I, I do believe we're moving into a period of what you could call multipolarity as opposed to bipolarity. Because on so many issues, yes, the United States and China are going to be have sort of a bipolar dynamic, But more so than the Cold War, I see that bipolarity being kind of nested within a larger set of actors and a larger multipolarity. I mean, a great example is some of the recent developments in the Middle East where, you know, China brokers the Saudi-Iran talks. The United States is trying to broker Saudi-Israel talks. But, you know, Saudi Arabia is clearly making an effort to become a very significant independent geopolitical player. Iran has had those ambitions and, and was a major actor in that process. 
you know, the UAE is involved as well on other kinds of regional issues. You've got European powers being very significant. So when you drill down onto particular issues, I think although the United States and China are sometimes uniquely influential, you tend to find this kind of mosaic of different actors. And in a situation where the United States and China really can't usually get what they want without the help of some of these middle powers. So for a variety of those kinds of reasons, you know, I do think definitely that compared to 20 or 30 years ago, what we call middle powers uh, are a more significant influence on international politics. What I find interesting, and I recently I heard Ian Bremmer from the Eurasia Group talk about this, is that these things differ depending on the sphere that you look at. So one is right. obviously traditional geopolitics, military power, where you could argue that there is still a unipolar world uh, to a certain extent because there's only one global superpower, only one country in the world. The United States is able to project military force everywhere in the world. China is rising, but it's a regional military player, not a global one. And then you have the economic sphere where, for example, not Germany alone, but Germany as part of the European Union, the, the European countries together have significant clout to the point. I mean, there's, it's a different type of example, but recently Apple announced its newest lineup of models, the iPhone 15. And, uh, you know, uh, famously, I don't know if you're an iPhone user, but for the first time, the iPhones now have a USB-C connector and it's arguably mm -hmm. due to European regulation. Yep. So European regulation forced a US company, a preeminent US company, to make a technology switch that they probably wouldn't have done otherwise. So in the economic sphere, the European Union is a, is a fairly important player. Militarily, as we all know, not really. Yeah, we're not without US support. For example, in, in Ukraine, the situation would be rather different. So is that also something that was different, say, in the Cold War, where all these worlds tended to be more aligned with each other than they are today? I don't know that I, I mean, yes, to a degree in the sense that there were periods in the Cold War where the United States was more predominant than it is today in non-military realms. I mean, obviously, if you look at the immediate post-war period, 45 through really late 50s, maybe even early 60s, I mean, the United States kind of loomed over the world economy, partly because others were recovering, of course. But so, yeah, that is somewhat different. I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily divide the issue into kind of clear realms like that. I mean, I don't... The challenge with, with calling the military or security realm unipolar is that the United States can't often achieve what it wants to achieve <laughs> despite its global reach. I mean, it is the only country with that kind of global reach, but it couldn't get what it wanted in Vietnam. It couldn't get it in Afghanistan. It couldn't get it in Iraq. It believes it, it is in great peril of being able to achieve its goals in Taiwan. Part of the problem is... As a global power, the United States is always projecting that power into distant realms, which is enormously difficult. And so when you start talking about specific conflicts or potential contingencies, then the unipolarity really sort of fades away. And, and the United States is, is not such a dominant military actor, depending on what you're talking about, you know, that it needs to do. But certainly in these other realms, as you say, in technology standard setting, I mean, increasingly on AI, obviously, you know, European countries are talking about various kinds of standards to set. In data privacy, the European standard has had a significant influence on U.S. companies internationally, all kinds of trade and investment rules and practices. 
but even in the security realm, I mean, if you look at a sort of security cooperation, military assistance, engagement, training, advising, in that realm, the European Union, NATO countries, European countries individually, collectively, are a really significant actor. I mean, we talk about increasing Chinese and Russian kind of foreign military activities. Those countries are both dwarfed by Europe as a security cooperation actor. So across a lot of these realms, there's just, and and I think, and, and a key thing is this trend is going to increase over time rather than plateau or decrease because a lot of these middle powers are determined to grab more and more influence in these various categories. So I think it's a generalized trend. I, I wouldn't sort of segment off the security piece and say, okay, well, that's that's American, that I think it's a more general factor in international politics. Fair enough. And I think there are some differences, obviously, between the countries. We've talked about this. Some of these middle countries or middle powers that you've defined, they belong to a specific camp, um, Japan being one, Germany for sure, the European countries that you know belong to the, to the Western world. But others are trying to chart a different course. Uh, India comes to mind as the most prominent example. And it's also a country that is increasingly being wooed by... The Western world uh, trying to bring it closer, is that going to succeed or do you think that a country such as India will become or will stay on as an independent power with more influence to wield the bigger and the richer it uh, becomes? Yeah, I think the latter. I mean, I, I pretty clearly every indication is that the current Modi government, the general strategic perspective of India is of a country that that is determined to have autonomy and an independent voice. We are seeing that on sort of issues of human rights and democratization, which some people are beginning to be concerned about. But in other areas too, I think, you know, the, the thing that there's a, a variety of interests the United States and India share. In the security realm, obviously, the thing that unites us is a perception of a Chinese threat. And as long as China keeps being coercive in its behavior, we're going to be aligned to some degree in that regard. But one of the one of the challenges that this environment obviously poses for the United States is, like with the Indian example, over the next decade, we're probably going to disagree with India about more things in a lot of these areas we're talking about than we agree. But, you know, we're going to have to be respectful of their point of view. They're not going to pose a threat to the United States. On some critical issues, like Chinese course of behavior, we're going to agree very strongly. And so how does the United States navigate a world where, you know, we're so used to dividing the world into, you know, to put it simply, those who are with us and those who are against us. And that is just not the world we're going to be in. And the United States typically hasn't been very patient in dealing with that sort of complexity. <laughs> so you're... you're advising a realist approach to India, collaboration where it makes sense for well, the US, for Europe? I mean, no, I, I wouldn't say realist exactly, you know, but I would say it's almost as if we need a new term. I mean, realism, you know, of course, implies a lot of things that is beyond just sort of tolerating others. I mean, I think it's sort of an issue of tolerance and recognition of the limits of your power. And that doesn't mean that, you know, putting India aside in, in other cases where you see democratic backsliding, it doesn't mean the United States won't care. It doesn't mean that we have to be entirely silent. But in that area, in, in trade behavior, in policies on, you know, Chinese technology, there's a whole long list of things where 
you know, with any given partner, there's going to be, who knows, 60% we agree on and 40% we don't or vice versa. And it's not, I don't think it's sort of a real politic thing to say, all right, well, we, you know, we need the relationship and we want them, you know, in our security pocket, so we'll tolerate the rest. It's a more fundamental judgment, which is the United States will strongly support certain liberal and idealistic goals and trajectories to the extent that it can. But, you know, as the dialogue with Saudi Arabia and Turkey and others makes clear, we are just going to have to be willing to, you know, we're not going to be able to shun countries that have some significant patterns of behavior we don't agree with. Yeah, and I mean, I guess this has also traditionally been the case. I'm, I'm just wondering, because especially when it comes to India, you often hear this uh, hope that it's a partnership that is also based on joint values uh, of the country being uh, the largest democracy in the world and so on and so forth. And those, obviously, those hopes are yeah often bound to be uh, uh, disappointed in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, th I think in a lot of ways, those claims are true to a degree. They certainly have been true. And there are certainly a lot of Indian analysts and officials that will agree that there's a lot of values we share. So it's just that with India and lots of other countries, it's, it's not going to be a simple menu of, you know, okay, we've got a list of 100 things on 90 of them we, we agree. So great. You know, it's going to be much more challenging to manage than that. And as we see with some European countries, obviously Poland and Hungary being leading examples, it's this incredibly difficult challenge for the United States. And I think it's different than it was during the Cold War when the realpolitik thing, I think, was more in the forefront and more in evidence because you did have a sense that the Soviet Union was trying to actively undermine democracies and replace them with communist regimes. And so cutting back support or doing something, you know, had that risk. Today, we don't have that. And so it's just a different context for making these kind of judgments about what, I, you know, yeah. policies you impose. I agree. And if I may turn this around, I mean, also from the European perspective, in the recent past of U.S. history, we were quite worried that, uh, you know, the question of shared values might uh, make a well, turn for the worse, right? That question <laughs> so, has not gone away, yeah, unfortunately. It's not going away. It's we're maybe coming back, year, maybe what? coming back. Yeah. Now, this is a podcast called Business Diplomacy Today. So we look at geopolitics, international relations, all these things uh, from a business angle, or we try to make sense mm -hmm. of those things for people who are in business, who run uh, companies. What do you think? The, the emergence of the middle powers that you've sketched out, what does that mean for global trade and for business environments in general? Well, you know, I think it's, it's uh, the most fundamental answer, and I hate to say this, is it's too early to tell, but it, uh, that is true because I think a lot of the patterns are very much in the process of working themselves out. One possible implication that's talked about is the question of trade blocks, right? And this is primarily a U.S.-China dynamic, or at least that's where I think the fundamental energy of that is coming from. But, you know, I think one thing we're going to see is with U.S.-China tensions I think weakening some of the consensus and institutional strength of shared international trade standards and investment standards, you're going to see opportunities for a lot of countries to kind of try to claim their own space, whether it's trade restrictions, favoring domestic companies, a variety of different kinds of things. 
And so the environment for business to, to operate in a lot of these countries, I think, is going to be less predictable. And uh, obviously, businesses in their risk management do this all the time. But I would be investing strongly in country expertise and a really good sort of risk intelligence function with the best possible information of kind of what's going on in governments, what the current thinking is, where are they headed in terms of their policies in a variety of economic areas. So so that's one thing. Another you know aspect, which again is it's sort of more about the U.S.-China competition in middle powers. It's this sort of technology competition landscape. And not only the pressures of the United States and to some extent Europeans, but also the reality, I think, of people's interaction with Chinese firms and, and patterns and habits over time, I can see opportunities emerging where over the next decade, countries are going to, some of these middle powers are going to be looking for alternatives in the technology space to any sort of reliance on China. And some that had started to move down that road, I think will be looking to move back, not again, because the United States demands that they stop using Huawei or whatever, but because the risks, I think, will become more apparent. There's uh, conflict issues, obviously, for businesses to be aware of. One of the hallmarks of a world that has more significant and sort of muscular middle powers is going to be a higher risk of conflict among them. And so again, kind of a risk management aspect to that. So I think it's it's a more fluid environment with more risk and opportunity in different ways. And again, that idea of trying to be on top of gain competitive advantage by being the best informed about what the next year, two, three years are going to hold in Brazil's economic policy, Turkey, you know, even countries like Japan or Germany, I think is going to be a key priority for businesses. Do you think that companies in general or the the business sector in general is doing that sufficiently well? And I'm asking because sometimes I have the impression that this is a discussion that is largely going on in the political world, where there's a lot of talk about de-risking, decoupling, diversification, and so on and so forth. But then if I look at investment numbers, for example, I recently read that uh, German investment, direct investment in China is at an all-time high. So the question is, does this discussion, this debate on the political level, does that translate into meaningful changes in the business world? And if not, why is that not happening? Yeah, I mean, to put it simply, I can't really answer your question because I don't have data. You know what I mean? I haven't investigated it. Clearly, and you see the same thing, there's a lot of anecdotal reporting that this thinking is going on, right? Particularly, as you mentioned, in terms of the US-China relationship, more so than kind of the, the middle powers per se. There's a lot of companies that have begun to look at other places to source, to, to put their supply chains and, and source supplies and things like that. German investment is held up, but as you've seen, of course, um, there's been a significant downward trend in external investment into China. So I think, I think in the US-China context, that recognition is hitting home. And companies are, appear to be responding to some degree, you know, to, to what degree, of course, I can't tell you. The interesting question, and again, I don't know the answer to this, is what about the middle powers? What about um, these emerging markets that have long, I mean, the economic projections are by 2050, a number of these countries are going to surpass some, some major European powers in terms of at least purchasing power parity GDP. So how, how actively are companies thinking about risks there, about the changes in 
if you have a country where there's democratic backsliding, if you have, I, I would imagine that this analysis is going on all the time, in part because of the rise of populism in some of the major middle powers. And businesses have to be aware of what that's going to do to economic policy. So, you know, I assume it's going on. I just think from, uh, it's been a few years, but from studying, doing a, a review of kind of risk management practices at the time of the financial crisis and, and afterward, I think the general pattern is probably a relative underinvestment in in that kind of knowledge. So I, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I feel like it would definitely be something for business leaders to look at and make sure they feel like they're well enough informed. That's one of the reasons why we have this podcast, that we hope that many of them will listen and uh, yeah. learn something. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one of the segments in this podcast is what we call... A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. And we know that's difficult to say. That's why we called it bold. And we don't necessarily hold you accountable in 10 years when the prediction is not fully accurate. But we still ask, invite all our guests to give it a shot and to tell us, in your case, how the world of middle powers and their position and influence in the world will look like in 10 years from now. So my bold prediction would be that, kind of uh, following on some of our earlier discussion, that in 10 years, the general view of the international system will not be U.S.-China bipolarity, but that accumulating Chinese challenges weaknesses, troubles, possible leadership transition in China, presumed leadership transition, I guess, 10 years from now, potential American political instability. But hopefully if that sort of evens out, it's going to be a world of the United States as the first among equals, and then China as the second among equals, but increasingly a world where, whether we call them middle powers or whatever the terms are, on any given issue, it is a much more significantly multipolar kind of process, that it's just the U.S.-China bipolar situation is going to give way to a different fundamental reality in world politics. How do you see the likelihood of there being a, some kind of a military conflict between China and the U.S. in the next 10 years, either over Taiwan or in the South China Sea, probably? I mean, I think Taiwan is the one thing that worries me. I don't, you know, I just don't think that China has the will, the interest, or even the capability to decide to impose a military solution on the South China Sea. And that would be something that would really involve them in a war with many other countries. So Taiwan, to me, is the risk. And there I like to think and still believe that a conflict is unlikely because I don't necessarily see a moment when China would be able to believe that the the risk-benefit calculus really is leaning in the right direction, particularly because of what's been going on. I think much more important than the military efforts the United States has been making, although those are notable, are is the sort of growing geopolitical alignment of countries that are concerned about Chinese course of behavior. And, you know, countries like Japan and Australia are taking a different stance on Taiwan, not that they're going to instantly fight, but And even some European countries, of course, have been have been saying things. And, and the recent parliament report on this was just remarkably blunt. So I think increasingly China's facing a reality where if they were to take military action, again, they wouldn't have 15 countries immediately going to war with them. 
but they would not be able to sort of get away with it on the margins of, of the international system. So for a variety of reasons, I continue to think it's unlikely. As we discovered in February of last year, a, you know, a leader of a non-democratic country can simply decide over the course of a year or so, I have to act. I just, I feel like I have to do this. Uh, it's happened lots of times in history, so we can never rule that out. But I think my own view is it's still unlikely, but the risk is uh, persistent. Getting back to the middle powers, do you think that some of these countries could also help mitigate some of the risks or moderate potential solutions? Probably not India in the case of the conflict with China, but there's been other countries. Brazil has tried to position itself as a potential peace negotiator with Ukraine, so far with not that much success. Other countries may be inclined to take up similar positions. Do you think that's something that is increasingly likely, that these countries, as you know, independent powers of sorts, try to put their heft behind solutions? So I think they're, they're definitely going to try. And I think that on some issues, some secondary issues, they'll definitely have a significant influence, which is part of the rise of middle powers. I think on the bigger military security and even to some extent sort of trade economic issues, I don't know because to, to make a difference in those cases requires being willing to really commit your power to an outcome in a risky way. And I just don't think, you know, the hallmark of these countries, most of them, in their general non-alignment has been their refusal to do exactly that. You know, I mean, they can host a conference on peace in Ukraine, but are they willing to threaten Russia with certain economic outcomes? You know, in the case of a Taiwan contingency, are some of the Asian middle powers willing to say, you know, this is unacceptable to us, we demand a, a peaceful solution, and we will, you know, at least indirectly support any response to military aggression. I just don't see them doing that. So I think that the the effect on some of those bigger issues of peace and war will still be limited. Now, we've talked a little bit about uh, the role of, of business, and, and obviously we have middle powers, uh, but we also have big players, big corporate players, uh, primarily the technology world uh, with predominantly American tech companies. Now, with uh, the rise of AI, maybe a completely new class of uh, companies that are entering uh, the space with uh, additional influence. And a lot of these networks that are behind it, they transcend physical and geographical borders. Are they players in their own right in this game? Or are these companies also subject to whatever happens between nations? I'll give you one example. There's a has been much discussion about the role of Elon Musk and his yeah. uh, satellite Starlink. internet uh, company, uh, the role that it plays in the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict, where at least if the sources or the news are, are credible, the U.S. government had to woo uh, him a private person, a private citizen, owner of a company, not to close down internet access in Ukraine because that would have had significant military implications for the Ukrainian military. So is a company or a person like Elon Musk an equal player nowadays in this big game? So not equal at all, I don't think. I mean, I think some of the rhetoric on the role of private sector actors relative to companies kind of exaggerates their power because ultimately they, um, governments, in theory can make 
various decisions that constrain and, and limit the, the role of companies. I think you're going to see in certain limited niche areas. So yes, to the extent that militaries and governments rely on commercial space assets for communication and other functions, those companies are going to be very important. And as at that moment could theoretically have some independent influence in other areas of sort of cybersecurity, information security, the vast amount of threats, information, responses is all being done in the private sector. And so their policies influence the information security of nations more than governments do. So in areas like that, yes, they'll have a significant influence, but, you know, ultimately they remain subject to the power of governments in most cases. And on, again, sort of bigger issues of peace and war, of fundamental trade policy, of, you know, I mean, if you look at the the policies of a lot of populist governments around the world, they're running very much against the interests of certain businesses. And, you know, so I think ultimately business as an actor is subject to the trends of, you know, international politics rather than the master of those trends. Executive Briefing. What you should read now. Another segment of our podcast is what we call Executive Briefing, What You Should Read Now. And there we ask our guests to make some recommendations for things that our listeners could read if they want to dig in a bit deeper into the topic of the episode. What is it that you would suggest to our listeners? Wow, that's that's a tough one, you know, and, and the challenge is I'm not going to have any specific titles to recommend. There's a significant amount of stuff that's been written on middle powers in the global south, just in terms of kind of magazine and, and longer form newspaper articles that discuss the, the phenomenon. There are some kind of classic views of books on the general trend in this direction. Fareed Zakaria had a book uh, a number of years ago, which I think is still very relevant on uh, sort of the rise of the rest, uh, some title like that. There's a book called The G-Zero World, which is about sort of a diffusion of power in a similar way. So there's a couple of interesting, relatively popular books that talk about this kind of transition. There's a lot of articles, but, you know, like I said, more than, than read from a business leader's perspective, I would say, you know, if I were a CEO, I'd identify the three or four or five middle powers that are of most concern to me and begin to set up an open source, if I didn't have one already, kind of information collection mechanism to be as well informed as I could of exactly what the political trends are, the economic trends relative to these kind of shifts in the international system. Where is this country headed? What kind of general approach is it going to adopt? So I think that almost that sort of ongoing day-to-day -day open source intelligence function is the kind of reading that I think would be most immediately useful to business leaders on these kinds of issues. Great. We'll make sure to put the link to the two books that you mentioned in our show notes. And obviously, as you rightly said, it's not enough to just read a book because everything is dynamic. So yeah. what may be true today may have changed tomorrow. We're in a very dynamic, volatile world, and that is also 
true for the middle powers. Very interesting conversation. Thank you very much, Mike, for that. We've come to the end. As always, we've only been able to scratch the surface of this topic, but that may open up an opportunity for a follow-up conversation on this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mike. It's been great to be with you. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.